Welcome. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for those who are, are joining us online and those of you who are here in our sanctuary. This morning, we're going to continue in our series that we've titled Short Truths, where we are looking at four of the shortest books in the entire Bible. They are Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude. And these are not just the shortest books in the Bible, but they are the least read books in the entire New Testament. Because of their small size, we don't even find them when we're flipping through the pages of the Bible. And even when we do find them, I fear that we tend to pass right by it because we don't think such a small book could possibly contain anything meaningful to say to us in this day and age. But as I said last week, there is truth to be found in these four little books that cannot be overlooked. And they have great application for our lives here today in the 21st century. So today, we are going to look at the book of 2 John. In preparation, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bible, the scriptures that we're going to be reading will be on the screen behind me. But while you're doing that, let me say Robert Leitner once said, affiliation with the enemies of the cross spells a lie to all claims to believe the truth. This little letter of 2 John contains one of the strongest warnings in the New Testament regarding one form of the enemies of the cross when he talks about false teaching and false teachers. It says, if a false teacher comes to your house, do not receive them. Do not take them in. That means do nothing that appears to give them public or private support in what they're touting. And do not even greet them. That means do nothing that will identify you with their false teaching. Verse 11 kind of sums up God's opinion on the matter, where when it's written, anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. These are exceedingly strong words written by the Apostle John, but here's his point. The longer that we condone error, the easier it is to compromise. Little by little, we become conditioned to moral decline and intellectual apostasy until it no longer seems so wrong to us. What we did not oppose, we begin to tolerate. What we tolerate, we begin to accept. What we accept, we begin to praise, and what we praise, we begin to practice. This is what John, who is often called the apostle of love, actually fears. That by not vigorously opposing evil, believers will end up practicing the very things they say they presently object to or reject. It may not happen overnight, and generally it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, spirit, the process of spiritual decline can take years, it can take decades, it can even take generations. But in the end, the bills come due for not standing for the truth. Most of us know and have heard the famous illustration about the frog in the kettle. You put a frog in a kettle with cold water and the frog will contently sit there. Now, if you to slowly turn up the heat a few degrees at a time, the frog, the frog system has time now to adjust. He doesn't even notice the changing of the temperature. So when the water finally comes to a boiling point, the frog senses danger and he tries to jump out, but it's too late. His legs won't work anymore. Something like that, just like that, happens to us when we coddle evil instead of facing it head on and calling it for what it is. 
when we, re- when we refuse to oppose that which is wrong, in the end, evil doesn't look so bad. You know, many people struggle with this book of 2 John because they say it seems too strong, too harsh, too unkind. They say it, 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 it appears to call for rude treatment of people who disagree with us. Can that be right? Is John urging us to slam the door on false teachers? And if so, then doesn't that contradict the law of love which should guide our conduct? Well, one thing is for certain, John's words do not sound right in this age of tolerance in which we live. One journalist called our day the age of enlightenment skepticism, which simply means that we live in a world that no longer believes in the truth. There was a time when men and women would would argue passionately about truth. Today, we argue whether truth actually exists. And if it does, how can anyone know the truth? And as a culture, we, we no longer are sure how to determine right from wrong, or even if we should make the effort to try to determine right from wrong. Another term for this you've heard used before is postmodernism, which simply means the truth exists in the eyes of the beholder. We say, well, that's truth for you, but it's not necessarily truth for me. And so truth becomes an entirely private issue with no implications for society as a whole. And it's against this growing trend that we have these words, these inspired words written by the Apostle John. Make no mistake, there are many false teachers who themselves are the very spirit of the Antichrist in our world today. They deny the incarnation, the central truth that Jesus Christ is God and came to this earth in human flesh. And they travel from place to place, peddling their spiritual poison. And as Christians, we've got to learn to reject these false teachers to the point of refusing them any sort of personal welcome. If we do welcome them, John tells us that we are guilty in sharing in their evil deeds. These are strong words. There's absolutely no doubt about it, but they are needed in this day of immense spiritual confusion that we live in. Now, you may, some of you may consider me narrow-minded, but it's important for you to know that I believe and agree entirely with the Apostle John. There are times when believers must aggressively oppose and refute false teaching and false teachers, because to do anything less is to flirt with the enemies of the cross, to make a mockery of everything it is that we believe in and stand for as believers in Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, is it, is it ever right to be rude to an unbeliever? Well, in order to answer that question, you gotta start by considering the background of this little letter. It's important to know that 2 John was one of the last letters written in the early New Testament era. Scholars date it between 85 and 90 AD, and that's significant because by that time, Christianity had spread quite widely within the Roman Empire. And as Christianity spread, so did numerous bizarre offshoots of genuine Christianity. And these spiritual counterfeits flourished during the time of the early New Testament church. Here are just a few of these groups. Judaizers, 
Arians, Modelists, Docetics, Sabellians, Cerinthians, not to be confused with Corinthians, and Nicolaitans. Some of these were closer to historic Christianity, while others were way out there. It appears that John is especially concerned with a group of false teaching known as Gnosticism. Their name came from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge. The Gnostics claimed to have some secret knowledge beyond that that was possessed by ordinary Christians. These first century progressives viewed with disdain, I might add, those whose faith was built upon the truth that was handed down from the apostles. And they claimed to have received secret revelation that only they could share. Does that sound familiar to you today? Such thought appealed to a lot of people in that day who were seeking a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of the Lord. It appears that such people had crept into the early church because John warns against those who have distorted the fundamental truths of Jesus. Look at the term he uses in verse 9. He says, anyone who runs ahead, as he uses it, as he calls it, and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. These Gnostics would say, well, that's old news. That was good for those days, but we have new truth for a new day. Kind of sounds enticing, doesn't it? I mean, after all, who wants to be stuck with old news when you can obtain new truth by joining an elite group of Christians? So John's concern here was for Christians who might unwittingly welcome such false teachers and even support them as they subverted the work of the church. It's also important to realize that the early church practiced hospitality much differently than we do today because they didn't have hotels. I said this last week, hotels and motels. When a traveling teacher came in town, he had to stay with one of the members of the local church. Therefore, this idea of warning people against welcoming false teachers into their home was a very practical thing for John to do and say. John is thinking about something much bigger here than how to respond when the Mormon missionary comes knocking at your door. He's looking at a situation where a Christian might give lodging to someone whose ultimate purpose was destructive to the, to the true faith. In other words, John is writing to urge his readers to practice spiritual discrimination. Sometimes love seems, needs to say no, because true love is forced to make true choices. So what about us today? Is this relevant? You better believe it is relevant. Today, false teachers are tied to Christianity and they promote all kinds of concepts to our faith that have absolutely no biblical basis or scriptural support. You've got the gospel of permissive grace where they teach that God loves you unconditionally, he loves you just as you are. Those are both true statements. But the erroneous belief that is attached to this movement is that there is an unconditional acceptance through permissive grace of one's sinful lifestyle. That is not biblical. You have the gospel of my sexual preference. 
This is where Christians are taught that any and every kind of sexual expression is acceptable. That is not biblical. You have the gospel of social justice. This is where you're taught to do good for your fellow man. That is good, that is biblical. But the underlying emphasis is that social concerns ultimately replace the finished work of the cross, when the cross is the only thing that can save. We have the gospel today of new age spirituality. This is a big one. This is a Jesus plus some other else kind of faith whereby mystical experiences supersede biblical truth. Much of it is occult type exercises, all designed to give one increased enlightenment, and eventually you become the God of your own universe. You also have the gospel of interfaith acceptance. This is when you will see Christian leaders submitting to religions like Islam. It's where they give credence to a belief system that is totally perverted and unsupported unsupported by the Holy Scriptures. Those are just a few. And when you consider the wealth of input that we have today that was not available 2,000 years ago through television and radio and books and the internet, these false teachers, they get a whole lot of press. They get a whole lot of attention, and this produces a vast amount of information that bombards us on every front. And sadly, many Christian people buy into these concepts, and they start to believe that they are acceptable. And so we need discernment lest we end up supporting heresy. You see, today, many people want God, but not Jesus. They want Jesus plus something else. They want a Jesus of their own making. They want a buddy, a pal, a friend, but not the sovereign Lord. They want a good example, but not an eternal God. They want a multicultural gospel that promises that everyone will go to heaven. They want religion, but they don't want a relationship with Jesus Christ. They want to hear a gospel that tickles their ears. They want to put an end to strong biblical doctrine. They want to position non-Christian religions on an equal footing with Christianity. They want to do away with sin. They want to do away with judgment. And they certainly want to do away with an eternal hell. They want a do-it-yourself kind of a Christianity, but not the Christianity of the Holy Scriptures. And we've got to be aware of these tendencies, and we must actively oppose those who promote them. Now, if all of this sounds too negative, consider how perfectly John balances the first few verses of this book, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. 
And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and that this love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. He mentions truth five times in these first four verses. To John's reader, truth was the teachings that were handed down to them from the apostles. To us, it is the word of God written and revealed in the Holy Scriptures. To know the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is to know the truth. To obey the Bible is to obey the truth. And then you'll notice that John mentions love five times in those six verses. What is love? It is caring for others on the basis of the truth. There's a, and there's a perfect balance between those two concepts. We are to walk in truth and we are to live in love both at the same time. So what does this mean for us today? How do we practically apply John's warning to false teachers and the challenges of balancing truth and love? Well, I'd like to suggest five things for your consideration this morning. And the first one is this, to love the lost. You see, in in light of John's stern warning here, what does this say about loving the lost? Well, it is at this point that John's words have been most misunderstood. Nothing he writes is meant to forbid us from having unsaved friends. Not only should we have unsaved friends, we must have unsaved friends. How else will we lead the lost unless we betray them, lead them to Jesus Christ? Remember, Jesus was called the friend of sinners because he loved the lost. He felt at home with them and they were comfortable around him. The same time, he welcomed the the proud Pharisees and the, the curious soldiers in his presence. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so as his people, we must earnestly seek to save those who are lost around us. But you can't win the lost if you don't know the lost. You can't reach a person with whom you have no contact. Jesus met old Nicodemus at night. He met the woman at the well in broad daylight. And he made both of them feel welcome in his presence. Therefore, I conclude that nothing in John's warning here is meant to dissuade us from doing the work of evangelism, of loving the lost people one by one. The second way that we apply John's truth against false teachers, as well as the challenge of balancing truth and love is this, by preaching the full gospel. Because today, many people believe the effect of correct doctrine is not really all that important. And you know what? A more foolish statement could hardly be imagined, especially as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must preach the gospel with all of our might because it and it alone is the power of God for salvation. You can find that in the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 16. You see, God only has one plan of salvation. There isn't a plan B. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There is no other plan for mankind. It is the gospel or nothing at all. Therefore, I say to you, never be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed to stand up for Jesus. Never be ashamed to own his name or to confess your allegiance to him. The workers of iniquity are not ashamed of their sin, so why in the world should we be ashamed of our Lord and Savior? Never fear to share about how how a relationship with Jesus Christ can radically change and transform someone's life and how they live their life. Because Christians have known from the very beginning that it is the power of the gospel and the power of God's spirit that indwells us that we see in, that allows us to see change in ourselves and see change in other people. We see it all around us by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the chains of sin can be broken off of people's lives and people can be set free and they can serve the Lord in wholeness. We have a message that can literally change our world, ladies and gentlemen. And yet many of us have, have remained silent we, we've, we've, we've sat on our hands and we've kept our mouth shut while false teachers and moral reprobates have held center stage for far too long. We have turned away while the purveyors of poison have held the microphone for far too long. To use a popular term, it's time for Christians to step out of the closet. You know? Identify us for who we are. Be proud of who we are. Preach the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and welcoming all of God's children in. The third way that we practically apply John's warning against false teachers and at the same time this challenge of balancing truth and love is how we regard the true children of God. It's possible that some would read John's words and think that he is warning against other believers with whom we have various doctrinal disagreements. But this is a complete misreading of this text. This is a warning against unsaved false teachers, not against other Christians. We are to welcome other believers with whom we have some lesser disagreements. Romans 14.1 says, accept him who is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. That means that we don't split hairs with other believers who may see things differently than we see them. You see, inside of God's family, there are so many inner debates. Arminianism versus Calvinism, covenant theology, versus dispensationalism, congregational government versus Presbyterianism, not the denomination, that's a model for how to operate a church, contemporary versus traditional worship. We have debates over baptism of sprinkling or pouring or immersing somebody underwater. We have debates over whether Jesus will come during, before, during, or after the tribulation. And the list goes on and on. Now, I'm not suggesting that these debates aren't important or that a church shouldn't have well-defined values and beliefs, uh, and, and every church does. I'm not saying that we should just say that anything goes when it comes to what we teach in Sunday school. I think that can lead to chaos. 
What I am saying and what the Apostle John is saying is that there is a huge difference between disagreeing over the timing of Jesus coming during the rapture and denying that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, over the years, God has opened my eyes to realize how big and how vast his family is. At this very moment, there are, he has children praising him in every country, on every continent, in every culture, in a thousand different languages. And you know what? It's, it's easy to be provincial. It's easy to, to look at everything through the lens of our own little congregation here in Red Bluff, California, and to judge everyone and everything else accordingly. God doesn't do that. And we can't do that either. He loves his blood-bought children. And we must love his blood-bought children as well. We are not working to win those who have already received salvation through Christ Jesus. We are working to save those who are lost and need to be found. The fourth way that we practically apply John's warning against false teaching as well as balancing truth and love is to reject false doctrine. If you'd like to do an interesting Bible study, then I encourage you to do a study on what the New Testament has to say about false doctrine. You might be surprised. Because warnings against false doctrine start in Matthew and they end in Revelation and they continue throughout the New Testament. It is a theme that runs through the New Testament. In fact, here's a brief survey of how to respond respond to false teachers. We are to guard against them in Acts 20.31. We are to have no fellowship with them in Ephesians 5.11. We are to avoid them in Romans 16.17. We are to reject them in Titus 3.10. We are to refute them in Titus 1.9. And we are to refuse them in 2 John 7-11. Now, one question that might be raised at this point is how can we reach an unsaved person if we must reject him outright? That's a good question. But again, that question is not on target at all because these warnings are directed at false teachers and not lost people. Most of the unsaved people around us could hardly be called false teachers. The vast majority of them are so confused that they hardly know what it is they believe, let alone are able to articulate it to you or to anyone else. So John isn't warning about spending time with confused people, not at all. He is warning against us spending too much time with those people who have given themselves over to the promotion of false doctrine and or moral evil. When we find such a person, It says not to support them in any way. Let me make this a little bit stronger. We are not to support or in any other way encourage those who teach, who spread, or promote falsehood or moral evil. The application of that truth is simple. We have to live in a fallen world, but we do not have to support those things that we know are wrong. Now, in case I'm being misunderstood, let me clarify. John says we are not to welcome or to receive or to greet false teachers. So in practical terms, what does that mean to us? Well, it's one thing to to talk to someone at your door. It's another thing to invite them in 
for a debate, a spiritual debate, or even a Bible study. You want to be careful about that. You're inviting the enemy into your home. It's one thing to watch someone on TV, and it's another thing to send them your hard-earned money. It's one thing to read up on New Age mysticism, but it's completely another thing to meet up with a New Age mystic and talk to him or her. It's one thing to be a friend, but it is completely something different to be a supporter. It's one thing to ask curious questions, but it's another thing to take lessons from Scientology. It's one thing to talk to someone who is confused, but it's another thing to give an audience to three young Mormon missionaries in your home who will tell you about a new revelation that God gave to a man named Joseph Smith when the scriptures clearly end with this statement, let no man add words to or take words away from these scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all I need to know. It's one thing to share your faith. It's another thing to encourage a false teacher to share his and give him a platform to spew forth all of his stupidity. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little riled. It's one thing to study the world's religions. It's another thing to study with a representative of a false religion. It's one thing to open your home to a foreign student. It's another thing to allow them to use your home as a forum for teaching others about their religion. And I could come up with many, many more examples or illustrations, but the general point here should be clear. In light of John's warning, we gotta use common sense. John isn't warning against normal social intercourse or intellectual curiosity or being exposed to differing points of view. We, these things we do in various times and in various ways. But there is a vast gulf forever fixed between curiosity and personal support of something that you know is wrong. The first is morally defensible. The second one is not. Well, the fifth way that we practically apply John's warning against false teachers and the challenge of balancing both truth and love is we must be willing to be misunderstood. Have you ever gone out on the limb and spoken up for truth and you've been decimated by the crowd around you? That ever happened to any of you? It hurt, didn't it? It hurt me. It hurt my heart. Why would they be so mean to me? And, and every time I get that feeling, I think to myself, Jesus hung naked on a cross, pulverized, beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a tree, died for my sins, and I'm gonna worry about somebody saying things about me when I'm proclaiming the truth. We gotta get real. And we've gotta get a little bit of a perspective. We've got to be willing to go out on the limb. We've got to be willing to stand up for what is right and what is true. We've got to be willing to be misunderstood. And I realize that this is not a popular message for our day and time, especially when so many people doubt. They doubt the very existence of absolute truth. But John demands here that we draw a line between truth and error when many people think that they're basically the same thing. In some situations, this means refusing an invitation or even breaking up a relationship for the sake of the gospel, which is easier said than done. You might be in a relationship with someone that's bringing you down, 
causing you to go into spiritual decline. Sometimes you've got to make the hard decision. In John Stott's commentary on 2 John, he makes an interesting statement. He talks about the difficulty that many people have with the concept of refusing to welcome false teachers and the many excuses that we offer for not obeying this particular command. In the end, he, he commented that if this teaching seems too hard for you, perhaps it's because you don't care as much about the truth as the Apostle John did. Suppose you go to the doctor for an annual checkup. The doctor finds a suspicious spot on your x-ray. After studying it, he tells you he believes that it's cancer. The question becomes, what do you want your doctor to do? What if he says, let's leave it alone? After all, you've got lots of other good tissue with no spots. Will that satisfy you? I doubt it. Or what if he suggests ignoring it in hopes that it just goes away and disappears? If you are like most people, you'll be justifiably unhappy with your physician. Let me put it this way. If your doctor knows that you have cancer and something needs to be done but doesn't care enough to do it, he's guilty of malpractice and he is not your friend. When you got cancer, you need a doctor who cares enough to tell the truth and has the courage to take the action that is required. The same thing is true, ladies and gentlemen, in the spiritual realm. There is such a thing as spiritual cancer. It begins small and insidiously it grows. And you know where it starts? It starts with doubts about the Bible, about creation, about heaven and hell. It questions the moral teachings of the Bible. It doubts whether Jesus is really the only pathway to heaven. It suggests that there are many equally good ways to get to God the Father. It wears down the sharp edges, if you will, of the Christian faith. It wants to be progressive. It wants to be accepted. It wants to be cutting edge. It desires worldly acceptance. It promises freedom but it always leads to slavery and death. And the Bible has important facts about people who say such things. Look at verse seven. I say this because many deceivers do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world, and get this, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Secondly, Acts 20.30 tells us this. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In other words, they come from among us. They are our friends. They are our family. They are our loved ones. They are respected teachers and pastors. They are favorite authors. They are sports figures. And they are celebrities. That is why over and over the New Testament warns us to be on guard. So don't say God bless you to those people. Do not welcome them into your home. Do not support their teaching. Do not say, oh, I know you mean well. They don't mean well. They mean to destroy the gospel. Do not wish them good luck in their endeavors. Do not encourage them in any way whatsoever. Let me wrap this message up by presenting to you with the one and only person who ever perfectly followed this teaching. His name is Jesus Christ. 
He loved sinners. He felt comfortable around them. He routinely went places and spent time with people in ways that most of us would never care to do. He welcomed everyone and he turned no one away. He uh, encouraged every genuine seeker that crossed his path. And he answered every question, the good, the bad, the honest, and even the insincere questions. But it's that same Jesus that rebuked the Pharisees. And he cleared out the temple courtyard with a whip. And he repeatedly spoke hard truth to powerful people without the slightest regard for his own personal safety. So what was he like? John 1.14 tells us that he was full of grace and truth. It's a wonderful phrase when you think about it. He was perfectly balanced all the time between truth and love. We face the same challenges today. To balance truth and love in all of our relationships. We are to know the truth and we are to walk in love all the time. Why both? Because here's the truth. If we emphasize only truth, we risk becoming perceived as hard and mean-spirited. And that will only alienate other believers to turn away the lost from Jesus Christ. And if we emphasize only love, we risk the chance of becoming soft and sentimental. And soon that leads us to compromise the gospel message, to excuse sin, and to welcome evildoers. It's like I said last week, and it isn't always easy. We must speak the truth in love. And that brings me back to the question that I raised earlier. Is it ever right to be rude to a non-believer? The answer is yes and no. No, if by that you mean being discourteous or unkind or unwilling to listen. But yes, we may sometimes need to act in ways that seem rude when we simply are attempting to obey God's word regarding false teachers. So as a practical way of applying this message this morning, here are some questions that I think we really need to ask ourselves. And we need to be imminently honest with ourselves about these questions. Do I really believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? In what areas of my life am I guilty of supporting that which I know to be wrong? Have I been silent about evil when I should have outspoken for the truth? I think we've all been guilty of that one. Have I been slowly lowering my standards of right and wrong in order to maintain friendships, in order to perhaps gain some kind of a personal advantage in the workplace or whatever's important to you? Have I been dabbling in falsehood when I really need to start speaking up for the truth? Is there a relationship in my life that needs to be broken because it is dragging me down the spiritual gutter? If my friends at church could see me during the week, would they be embarrassed when they saw the things that I do, the things that I say? Or more importantly, would Jesus be embarrassed? These are not easy questions 
But there are questions that, that we need to ask. Love must have limits. We must love people, but we must not tolerate false doctrine or condone moral evil. To use a familiar phrase, we must love the sinner while hating the sin. Sometimes we may appear to love the sinner too much, and sometimes we may appear to hate the sin too much. But both, understand, are going to be necessary if we are to stand for Christ and if we are to win lost people to the cross of Jesus Christ. Perhaps in our tolerance, we have become indifferent to the truth. And that's what John is warning against. But when it comes to eternal issues, High Point family, there is no room at all for neutrality. There just is no room for it. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. I hope that this warning from John regarding false teachers and false teaching have made you think. Because not everything being taught today in churches across America is biblical. There's a lot of wrong theology being taught in America. This is why I always encourage you to study God's word because if you don't spend time in the scriptures, you will not know what the truth is. And then it makes you susceptible. It makes you a prime candidate for someone who can be easily deceived whenever a false teacher comes along. And because your friend has fallen for it, and because you trust this friend who is also ill-informed and does not know the scriptural truth, you go along. And pretty soon you're following someone or some movement that is not Christian. They've mixed it up like a salad of all kinds of different things. Maybe as I've been speaking this morning, God has revealed to you some things that you've allowed to slip into your faith in Jesus Christ that you know is false, that you know is something that somebody made up and you cannot find scriptural basis to support what it is that you were taught. In a minute, we're gonna close in prayer. And when I do, this is what I want you to pray for. I want you to pray that God will open your eyes to know the truth. That God will put a check in your spirit whenever you hear something that doesn't line up with the scriptures. You ever been there? Somebody says something, you go, uh, kind of tilt your head like a dog when a dog looks at you that way. You go, that's not right. Something is wrong. And furthermore, that you won't just accept it, even though you know it's wrong, but you say, wait, wait a second. That's not right. Call them out. Pray that you will become strong and firm to stand against that which you know is untrue and to quit tolerating it and to quit turning a blind eye to it and to quit acting like it's acceptable when it's not acceptable to God. And furthermore, ask God to give you discernment to know what is true versus what is a man-made falsehood. And if you're here today, if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus this morning, well, let me give you the greatest truth I could ever tell you today. You need him. 
You need your life to be transformed by the love of Christ and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. This is the only way that you will ever come to know what the truth is. This is the only way for you not to fall for false teaching day after day, moment by moment, when God's Spirit indwells you. This is what happens when you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior through salvation. That's what we mean when we ask somebody, are you saved? The Bible says to be saved, you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to this earth in the flesh as a man, every bit man, every bit God. He died a horrific death. The blood that he shed on the cross covers or atones for our sin. And all you need to do is ask him to forgive you of your sin, to become the Lord of your life. That's the confession part. Jesus, I believe who you are. I believe you're the only way to God the Father. Today I give you my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. He will. The Bible says that if you pray that prayer, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will set you free. And his spirit, the Holy Spirit, will inhabit you. And it will begin to direct your life. It is God's Spirit that grants you the discernment and the understanding on how to live in this age and how to detect false teaching when it is presented. I want to open this altar this morning to anybody who might want to come and kneel at it. Since this COVID thing's been going down, we, we used to have altar calls every service. The altar would be filled with people who wanted to pray. We're doing it a little bit differently, but I just want to let you know this altar is open at any service for you to come and pray. If you want to kneel at the altar, bring your petitions before God, whether it's to receive him as Lord, whether it's to present a need to him, maybe you want to come forward this morning and just thank him for his faithfulness like that song that we sang. God is a faithful God. He's been faithful to us, especially this church through this whole COVID thing. It's been amazing what God has accomplished through some very restrictive times. Maybe you just want to come up and thank him. Or you can pray right where you're at. So whether you're at home and you're, and you're watching it online or whether you're here, let's go to the Lord in prayer together and let's present to him anything that maybe he has challenged you with this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this small little book of 2 John that warns us against false teaching so essential to our day and age because the truth be known there's even more false teaching out there now than there was in John's day and Father good meaningful Christian people are falling for it they've added bits and elements of, of some kind of an outside influence to their Christian faith and they really believe it's real when nowhere in your scriptures is it mentioned they're believing in a falsehood and Father, I know that breaks your heart. So I pray for my church family today that none of us would be deceived, that none of us would get caught up in a, in a whirlwind of doctrine that has become popular, that is not biblical, but sounds good and tickles our ears, that we would stand true on the gospel message as it is written, because nothing as your word says, needs to be added to it. It is complete and it is final. And Father, I pray for those watching online or here today who don't know you, that they would have the courage to pray a prayer of repentance, 
to ask you to become Lord of their life. And I pray, Father, that as a church, you would allow us the, the privilege of coming alongside of them and helping to disciple them in the word and in the truth found in your word so that they could continue to be strong believers in Jesus and not be sidetracked by so much of the fluff that's going on in our world today. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your presence, very sweet presence of the Spirit of God in this place today. And I know you've been challenging us. And I know you've been opening our eyes. And my prayer for my church family is that we would stand steadfast and strong in the truth of Jesus Christ. That we would be unashamed to speak forth your goodness of who you are, what you did for us, and what you've accomplished in our own personal lives. So that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray, Lord, for opportunities for us to share our faith with others and that we would not be afraid or ashamed to open our mouths and that we would trust and believe that you would give us the right things to say, which you always do in those situations. And God, I pray that we would see fruit in our labor. But let us also be reminded, Lord, we do not save. Only you can save. We are just proclaimers of the good news. Help us to do that diligently. Help us to do that daily. God, I pray that until we meet together again here today to worship you, that you would keep us safe. You would keep us safe from this, uh, this COVID. You would keep us safe from any other sicknesses or diseases that might befall us. You would keep us safe in our workplace as we drive our cars so that we can come together again, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray as we depart from this place that your spirit would go with us and the things that we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have, and that those conversations would always uplift and not tear down, that we would be a blessing to people and not a curse, that we would let your light shine through us in this very dark world so that people could look at us and know that there is something different and it is the love of Christ that indwells us. So as we go our separate ways, Father, I pray that you'll be with us, guide and direct our steps. Holy Spirit, empower us to do those things you've asked us to do so that we can do them well. And I ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.